My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we discussed politics with Colomb K. Salvador, co-founder of Atlas, a movement to mobilize people beyond national borders to solve global problems, as well as Jeremy Oppenheim of Systemic. We heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline, about how eco-anxiety doesn't just stem from the climate crisis, but perceived inaction in the face of it, particularly from the institutions we've been raised to trust. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out after today's episode. This penultimate episode of the series is on nature and extinction. To be perfectly honest, this has been the hardest episode for me to record, because in many ways, thinking about extinction is the greatest source of my eco-anxiety. Indeed, it's what catalyzed me to become a climate activist. Growing up in Australia, I wasn't allowed to watch horror films, so I turned to documentaries, The Cove, Food Inc., and Inconvenient Truth. The first time I experienced heartbreak was when I sat glued to my computer screen, seeing how fast we were devouring the earth. I know a lot of people feel the same way. Nobody wants to lose magnificent animals like the silverback gorilla, white rhino, or the Malaysian tiger. Nobody wants to see the Great Barrier Reef fade out of existence, or million-year-old forests in the Amazon being bulldozed to produce Big Macs. We don't want to lose any of these things. and. The reality is we can't afford to, not just because we want them to exist for our kids and their kids too, but because we cannot survive without nature. We are nature. If biodiversity collapses, so too will all life on this planet. That includes humans, with a capital H. The loss of nature is driving climate change, and climate change is accelerating the loss of nature. Thinking about it <sighs> makes my stomach feel all hollowed out, but I still feel hope. I've seen pockets of nature bounce back when left to regenerate, or species come back from the brink of extinction when people rally to protect them. I still hold hope that we can change the course of humanity. I still hold hope that we can appreciate the diverse, magnificent life forms we share this planet with, enough to fight for their survival alongside our own. There was no one I could think of better to speak on this subject than Jennifer Morgan, 
Executive Director of Greenpeace International. You'll hear from her at the end of this episode, after we travel around the world to young people whose eco-anxiety is fueled by nature and extinction, and to our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, to help us journey through these feelings. But first, I knew I needed to talk to my friend Ashwarya Sridhar, trailblazing conservationist, photographer, filmmaker, and presenter. There is little Ashwarya can't do, and she's focused her many talents fighting for the nature in her own backyard. Take it away, Ashwarya. I'm Ashwarya Sridhar. I'm 24. I'm a wildlife filmmaker, presenter, photographer from the magical land of India. What was your catalyst for getting into this space? For And how did you find that medium of storytelling and capturing images. Growing up in Panvel, most of my childhood, I used to like chase butterflies and see fireflies in my balcony. And I had so many different kinds of birds all in my backyard itself. So being close to nature developed that bond with her at an early age. So all of those were like baby steps towards my career in wildlife unknowingly. What have you witnessed within your own environment growing up? So Panvel is a place where which is surrounded by wetlands and there is this coastal village which is very close to where I live called Uran. About a decade ago it was the most beautiful place full of marshes and wetlands and mangroves and today it's a concrete nightmare. So initially I used to see a lot of butterflies and birds even around my own house but now the numbers have drastically reduced even in terms of a so-called protected forest. If I were to go back in time and say maybe five, six years ago, in a place where I probably recorded say 200 species of birds in one day, today if I go back there, there's only about 100 species max or even maybe lesser. So the change is very visible. Would you say that's indicative of what's happening globally? Yeah, even across the globe, we're hearing of species becoming extinct. We're hearing of habitats being lost. The Great Barrier Reef is dying today. So these are some things which are happening across the world. And this is permanent. There's no going back in it. Are there particular examples of animals that you love or habitats that you've captured that are really at risk? I would say Panjai. Uh, because I have some very beautiful memories of that place. Uh, I've seen my first flamingos there. Uh, I've documented a whole range of species. I've had many at, at this one particular wetland. But today, because of one corporation, that entire wetland is dry. They have blocked the entry of the tidal waters into the wetland. And they've also installed security check posts along the side of the wetland, stopping photography, stopping the local communities from fishing. And also putting a ban on any visitor into the wetland, which is extremely sad because this is God's creation. This is not just one corporation's property. What was the corporation doing in that wetland? Like, What was their interest for being there? Oh, they want to build a luxury apartment complex over there. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like deep breathing. I'm like trying not to get too triggered. How has your perspective evolved from that moment as, you know, a young girl seeing the destruction of this wetland to the point you're at now, you know, how do we begin to allow communities to develop and, you know, pull themselves out of poverty without the total annihilation and destruction of, of the environment? Is that even possible? Today, when Panjai stands on the brink of extinction, I feel the biggest support that I'm getting is from the local fishing community because they 
are at the biggest loss as well, apart from the biodiversity impact, of course, because they depend on this wetland for their livelihood, which is fishing. They seem to have already struck a perfect balance in sustainable fishing. And you have birds coming all the way from different parts of the world. But when we bring in this third factor of development and the so-called developmental agencies and the government. They tell me that this is for the upliftment of the area and the poverty cycle would be broken. But those villagers are happy continuing to do what they have been doing for ages. They have, they're generating enough income for their family, for uh, their lifestyle, and they are very happy in protecting that habitat. It's only we who feel that, you know, we need to uplift that area. We need to make that into a swanky luxury apartment complex. And that is definitely not going to generate any income for the local community. In fact, that they're going to be definitely displaced. So if the problem isn't coming so much from these communities, as you said, who are perfectly satisfied to continue their way of life in these areas, what is driving the destruction of nature on this major scale? our greed and overconsumption of resources. We have these large corporates who are only behind the profit motive and they're willing to trade our ecology for our economy. It's all about GDP. It's all about getting money in your bank. There is absolutely no thought that is given to the repercussions that would come in the future. In your work as a photographer and your desire to document nature, has that at all been driven by fear that future generations, potentially your own future children, will not be able to see those habitats and wildlife? Yes, it is driven by that to a large extent. I sometimes feel that one lifetime would not be enough to document the stories of the biodiversity that is there on our planet. There's so many ecosystems. I come from a country which is extremely biodiverse. My country is everything from snowscaped uh, mountains to deserts to evergreen forests to grasslands to dry deciduous jungles, it's everything. Every type of ecosystem is there. But are we valuing that? No. So it's possibly my main aim in storytelling is to create an impact at probably the policy level so that more people wake up and the government wakes up and they take notice and change these things, which will ensure that this species or this habitat is protected. As you said, the current economy has really been built off the exploitation of frontline communities, of the exploitation of nature. And it's pretty scary to think that we currently live in a society where we value a tree more when it's dead than when it's alive. And that also comes from how we've divorced ourselves from nature to think that it is something that we can commodify and exploit without consequence, even when we're entirely dependent on it. And medicines and remedies that exist to diseases today that haven't even been discovered yet, that exist in the Amazon Basin or that exist in Borneo that we won't even have access to because we'll have destroyed it for beef and soya plantations. Why do you think we've gotten so good at removing ourselves from nature and why is it so important that we cultivate ecophilia in people, not just an appreciation of our dependence on nature, but a deep love and gratitude for it as well? That love for nature has to be there and it has to be there in today's kids because they are the future of our planet. So I think if you, if you create that love in the younger generation, they will strive hard to protect 
the planet in the coming years the older generation has done to some extent but when they have handed over this planet to us a lot of it has been destroyed there's hardly anything left whatever is left has to be saved right now otherwise we'll be handing another generation a planet which is completely unsustainable and they will literally curse us for that The stories that you've documented, the ones that really detail the threat to nature, the threat to wildlife, has that impacted your mental health? And would you say that you've experienced this kind of eco-anxiety, like particularly around the future of the earth that we're inheriting? I have experienced eco-anxiety definitely because it's something that is frightening as to I don't know what the future will be like we have census every single year for the tiger population and we say that you know the tiger population has grown and today I, in India it's close to 3000 tigers that are left in the wild which is a good number when you look at the rest of the world but at the same time there are a lot of deaths of the tigers as well So when you compare the two numbers is there really growth that is one of the concerns that I do have it's not just about one species as a complete planet it is it's scary i mean i don't know if tomorrow i'll get up and i'll be able to breathe clean air or drink clean water so i don't know what the future holds so definitely i do have eco anxiety do you see those feelings and that fear particularly about the future reflected in other people in our generation yes it is reflected at least because i can see melati i can see greta is there for example they're all championing that very cause that it's better to stand up now and do something about it than regret it 10 years down the line 50 60 years ago what someone saw in a forest like say for example sir david what he saw was already a depleted forest and today what we are seeing is still further depleted so what possibly our grandchildren or our great grandchildren would see would be even worse unless we do something now and we rejuvenate the lost habitats which is difficult because even though we talk about rejuvenation and reforestation and you know reclaiming wetlands as such the ecosystem once lost to bring it back to its full potential will take decades Ashwarya shared that part of her eco-anxiety is fueled by this realization that these last remaining pockets of nature have already been heavily degraded. Compared to the world our parents grew up in, there is so little untouched wildlife in the world we've inherited. How little will there be in the world we hand to our own children? I wanted to learn if there were others like Ashwarya and me struggling with their eco-anxiety in response to the global devastation of nature. So, I put a call out to young people around the world. Here is what they had to say. I'm Kate De Leon, a 22-year-old graduating business student from Manila, Philippines. For me, eco-anxiety is this concrete living entity that feeds upon my thoughts and emotions. It's like this shadow that's always there, but it grows as the fear you have deepens or multiplies. I was once a responder to the intense floods caused by Typhoon Venmo that submerged the entire Cagayan Valley, and it broke my heart when my colleagues and I were already rescuing cadavers, both the young and the old. So after this experience, it was just clear to me that nature has to this thin line between beauty that can give immense satisfaction but also terror that can give you the most horrible nightmares 
My name is Tupelo. I'm 16 and I'm from Gainesville, Florida, which is occupied Sumikwa and Seminole land. Climate change makes me feel absolutely paralyzed with fear. I feel an enormity of grief and despair when I think about it. It sometimes feels as if I'm sinking in these moments when it really hits me. All the energy just drains out of me and there are many days when I just feel like I want to rip my heart out because the heaviness and intensity of what's happening is just too much to hold. You know, being someone who already struggles a lot with mental health, this has had such a huge impact on me. Mass extinction is absolutely the hardest thing for me to process when it comes to climate change, so I definitely feel it go anxious about it. I just have such an overwhelming love for all life on earth so I feel an enormous amount of eco grief and eco anxiety that we are losing these species who have been here for thousands of years. These beautiful and complex species it just absolutely terrifies me and it totally breaks my heart. I am Tomáš Hovanec. I'm from Hungary currently living in Taiwan and I am 34 years old. I can definitely relate to the term eco-anxiety, the anxiety that this notion of uncertainty and the unknown creates in the human mind. Climate change has impacted my relationship with nature. I have built a higher and more profound respect to the natural environment around me. A couple of years ago, I had the chance to be in Alaska and I had the chance to be sitting in a sea kayak in the Prince William Sound, observing one of these beautiful glaciers, just seeing how the glaciers was melting in front of us had a profound impact on me and realizing that I'm contributing with my own behavior to what is happening. Does nature make me feel eco-anxious? Not at all. In fact, nature is the place where I go to get rid of eco-anxiety. Nature is healing. I look outside of my window right now and I see beautiful trees, cherry blossoming here in the spring. I hear the sound of the river and the birds and I close my eyes and I feel that I am part of nature. My name is Sean Gatenby, I am from North Wales and I am 26. Eco-anxiety is an incredibly rational response to the reality that we find ourselves in and I think that combining our passions and our interests with our energy and driving that towards something that is going to positively impact the environment, I think that is the only way that we can have some control over our future and over the anxiety that we feel. The more we connect to nature, the more we will realize that we are a part of nature. All the cycles, all the fluctuations that we see in nature also are existing and happening within ourselves. And I think that whenever we feel these big emotions, like there's something in them and we need to have this compassionate intention with everything that we feel, with everything that we experience, and then we'll get to the right solutions. We've just heard from young people sharing how their experience of nature fills them with both awe and terror as we fall out of balance with nature and its extremes are exacerbated by climate change. I want to figure out how to navigate these difficult feelings. So I've reached out to my friend Caroline Hickman to unpack what we've just heard. Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath who has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Here she is. This has been going on for generation after generation. 
situation. And we frame this as progress, that we had to defeat nature or tame nature in order for there to be progress. And nature is something that we put in a park to go and visit on the weekend or idealize when we watch a beautiful documentary where we just totally ignore the nature often right under our noses in our own gardens. You know, we just look at this exotic nature somewhere else. We have such a messed up relationship with it and it's been going on for so long. The only way to resolve this crisis is to value nature. Jay Griffiths has written about young people and children and why they're so unhappy in Western industrialized society. And in comparison with children and young people growing up in more indigenous cultures, living closer to nature and the environment and the land, it's this disconnect with the natural world, which is at the root of that. I'm not saying that young people growing up in indigenous environments closely related to the land don't have other forms of distress, but it's different. We have epidemic problems of mental health amongst children and young people, and the Royal College of Psychiatrists here in the UK declared a climate and ecological emergency last week, and at the centre of this declaration is this recognition that this disconnection, this loss of relationship with the natural world is at the heart of this. It's at the root of this. So our professions are recognising this now. So I think it was in 2016 here in the UK, the Oxford Junior Dictionary was going to take out all of these words about nature because they said that they had to reflect contemporary modern childhood. And they were going to take out bluebell, buttercup, catkin, heron, newt. They perceived as no longer relevant to modern day children. And they were going to replace them with block graph, blog, internet because that was contemporary childhood. What happened was the writers for children caught wind of this and said, no, this is terrible. If you do this, those words are lost. And if you lose the words, you lose the relationship with the creature. So the children's writers objected to this and it didn't happen. We need to start addressing this in terms of mental health and resilience and in terms of saving, preserving valuing, validating nature now. We need to do both. Even if you're living in a city, nature is still all there. I lived in London for a long time. I used to have foxes come and sit on the flat roof of my kitchen and there was a skylight. Nature is still there, but we have to notice it. And if we don't notice it, then we start to lose sight of it. I do a ritual every morning where I will go outside, just appreciate one thing I see from nature. And it could just be the greenness of a fern, or it could just be a cloud. But it's a ritual that just reminds me that I'm part of that. I really resonated with what Caroline said in response to Oxford Junior Dictionary, replacing words such as acorn and buttercup with terms like broadband and cut and paste. If we lose those words, we lose our relationship to nature. This reminds me of a term I learned recently, plant blindness, which describes our inability to see or notice plants that we can't name. If we can't notice nature's species, we can't protect them, tell stories about them, or have radical future visions about them. Earlier, Ashwarya spoke of the corporate interests that are driving the displacement of communities and the destruction of ecosystems. I'd now like to speak to someone who's taking on these giants directly, and so I reached out to my friend Jennifer Morgan, Executive Director of Greenpeace International, for the final conversation in today's show. Here she is. I'm Jennifer Morgan. I'm the Executive Director of Greenpeace International. I'd love to hear how nature extinction is contributing to climate change. There's a number of ways the most obvious 
two, I would say. First is within our natural world of our forests, and the second is in the natural world of our oceans. You need the resiliency of those ecosystems that keep us all in balance and the vital role that those ecosystems play in actually absorbing in some of the CO2 that gets pumped into the atmosphere, especially when you, you have so many fossil fuels being dug up from underground and put into the atmosphere, which is the other big store. The minute you start degrading those two, you create massive imbalances and you also create what's possible around tipping points that can occur as well, where the impacts will occur even more quickly. You know, another one, of course, is the nature of the Arctic and Antarctica that have a reflection back into the atmosphere of heat. So it's all interconnected, as you know. <laughs> Keeping that in a balance in a way is what humans have been so incredibly terrible at. But we need to be therefore both halting that extinction, protecting those areas. And with that, we will be helping avoid the climate catastrophe into a level that we just don't even want to imagine. What are, in the 21st century, the leading drivers of nature extinction? Well, there are a number of different drivers of nature extinction, and we like to look at it from a systemic perspective. So if you think about the destruction of nature, and you think about a neoliberal system that prioritizes short-term economic growth and the well-being for just a few, then destruction of nature doesn't really rank very high. And it means that the industrial agriculture agricultural system, for example, will prioritize the clearing of lands for their own industrial profit and industrial ag profit over, for example, more localized or sustainable agriculture. The intrinsic value and benefits that nature has all on its own are not respected nor valued by our current system of governance or of the neoliberal economic system. Who benefits from that ideology being supreme? Banks, fossil fuel companies, and industrial agriculture have profited from that system. I read a pretty shocking article over the weekend about a group of billionaires who were asking for advice from a technology expert about how they could go to Mars or how they could use artificial intelligence to try and know when the mobs are going to come because they are assuming that they are going to have to either evacuate or live in their towers because of all of the harm that is being wreaked. How do we begin to heal that divide? One is it happens at the dining room table. I've had a number of executives who have said to me, they sit at the dining room table, they may be heads of banks or fossil fuel companies, and their children basically say, how can you do this anymore? This is my future. And so there's a very direct link in between the decisions that that person is taking and being confronted by someone who they care about deeply. Sometimes those individuals may need to be forced out either by I'm a deep believer in people power. I have seen it. I see it every day at Greenpeace about how the individual actions of people, farmers, moms, dads can come in and really challenge a local power. It's on people feeling how each thing that they do, whether it be the conversation at the dinner table, whether it be challenging the local utility, whether it be whatever it might be, and having that aimed at really changing the system itself. So changing the way elections are funded, changing who makes 
decisions, changing who's able to go in and lobby, those things can make a massive systemic shift. That's one way of trying to break through and help heal. Another is experiences that connect those individuals with nature in a way that they kind of open up that crack in that shield, whether that be through things like art or music or things that connect deeper, you know, not just with the head. Of course, you have facts, but you have to have the facts there. But sometimes you need to go beyond that. There's so many studies about how time and nature is so important for well-being, but also just for connectivity and for that intrinsic connection. And so I think there's a whole body of work about actually having children up to adults have that time. And I think it's especially important in such a digital age. Those are two ways that I think can be really effective and make change. What changes do we need to see in the next 10 to 20 years for you to feel that we are on track to putting a halt to the sixth mass extinction and avoiding the worst of climate tipping points? The protection of nature and biodiversity, whether it be through protecting it at least 30% of land and ocean by 2030, the shift to ecological, localized agriculture, a shift to eating less and better meat and dairy, but getting the systems in place to enable that I think is important. And then it's clear we have to stop the exploration of fossil fuels, both from the perspective of biodiversity loss and from the perspective of climate change. And we need to do that with a just transition for workers because they have given tremendously to the well-being of many people around the world. And we need to make sure that we are taking care of them as we go through this kind of a transition. So there's that whole body of work. But I think around that is the mindset shifts and the culture shifts as far as what are people valuing, especially after this horrible pandemic. My hope is, is that this opening that we've experienced, this disruption that we're all living through can help us connect again more with what's important to reconnect with the people who you love and your friends and your family and to really value that rather than getting on a plane and going somewhere for a weekend, right? You know, we've seen tremendous shifts in culture, whether it be around LGBTQI and the gay marriage uh, and other rights that have occurred there, which hasn't occurred everywhere, obviously. But those types of mindset shifts are the ones that we also need in our relationship to nature and what we value as human beings. Do you recall the first time you ever experienced eco-anxiety? I do. I sure do. I remember the first time where I really, really felt it. And that was at one of these Conference of the Party annual meetings of the UN Framework Convention, where I had worked with others to bring climate witnesses into those meetings to try and bring those real stories in. There was a woman from Fiji who'd never been on a plane. There was a Peruvian who lived below a glacial lake. You know, and I organized it all and made the delegates know that this was going on. And then I went back home and I was talking to my sister and I just lost it. Like all of my protective mechanisms just went away talking to these individuals who were either so dependent on nature for their different reasons. And I had to really look after myself for a couple of days because I was so raw. And then that's, I think, when I started to learn about how to take care of myself, that if I want to be an advocate, if I want to be an activist, that I also need to take care of myself because I'm no good if I'm not able to do that because I'm so anxious. So that's where I started both taking care 
care of myself and then picking where I really felt like I could have the biggest impact. Where are your major sources of hope and inspiration and who are the individuals that feed your eco-resilience so that you can continue to show up and do the work? My sources of hope are the individuals who are out there fighting for a better world. And I'm very fortunate that I work for an organization that I hear those stories very often. The local farmer who's making change up against interests in Indonesia, the women who are riding bicycles in India, both for their own safety and or something for the planet to get to work. All of those things that just make me know that I'm connected to that individual because we're both out there trying to make the world a better place in a very concrete way. The other source of hope and inspiration, I have to say, is being in nature. That actual feeling sitting in a forest or next to a stream and thanking that tree or that creature that's around me for what they're giving to me because I feel their energy back. And I take that with me in order to give me the strength and the diligence to keep that fight there and give that to others. That's where I get my hope and inspiration from. We've just heard from Jennifer about what's driving the climate and biodiversity crisis and what we urgently need to do to end it. The TLDR is that our society is predicated on limitless growth with finite resources and promoting values like competition and consumption over connection and community. In this society, it is easier to envision life on terraformed Mars than forge meaningful relationships with life here on Earth. As Ashwarya said, there is something deeply terrifying about the permanence of extinction. Yet how awake are we to this loss, really? With the exception of frontline and indigenous communities, for much of the world, habitat loss, species decline, and extinction are abstract matters. We read about them and we know that they're a statistical concern, but in the absence of a personal experience of loss, it doesn't feel quite so real or so painful. We are plagued by widespread blindness, a blindness to the loss of nature and a blindness to nature itself. Helping people to connect with nature can wake us up. Once you have experienced the awareness and aliveness that immersion in nature uniquely gifts us, you will feel forever more connected, invisibly but tangibly, to each living thing. After personally experiencing nature's quiet, confident power, there is no doubt you will be more inclined to protect it. And the science backs this up. A 2020 study of over 24,000 people found that those with greater access to and a greater appreciation of natural environments were more likely to behave in ways that benefit the earth, including recycling, walking or cycling rather than driving, and environmental volunteering. Now, when we talk about emotions in the climate arena, the pervasive tone is one of angst. The emotions associated with driving climate action are typically negative, fear, guilt, anxiety. Glenn Albrecht coined the term psychoterratic to define environment-related mental health issues, including eco-anxiety, solastalgia, and ecophobia, the feeling of powerlessness to prevent cataclysmic ecological change. Of course, feeling fear, anxiety, and grief is an unavoidable aspect of truly understanding the crisis we are in. But cultivating positive emotions can help us deal with the inevitable negative ones. Force of Nature students often speak of a bittersweet sensation when out in nature. The bliss that Jennifer mentioned of being submerged in trees or diving in the sea, coupled 
with the pain of seeing stray plastic pollution or knowing that much of the world's underwater life is estimated to disappear due to warming waters and overfishing. These feelings are difficult, but healthy. Indeed, many climate psychologists would argue that they are essential. This feeling soup is evident of our humanity. It shows that we are awake to the crisis rather than blindly numbing ourselves to it. Fear, uncertainty, and anxiety are inevitable, yet we can't allow these feelings to exclusively define our relationship with nature and the future of our planet. It is just as important that we cultivate ecophilia, love, and awe for nature alongside the incredibly valid grief toward losing it. By coupling feelings of anxiety with agency to change the system, we can channel our emotions, rather than feeling passively beholden to them, into fighting for all that's left and restoring much of what has already been lost. Next week, is our final episode in the season, and the theme is education. We have incredible conversations lined up. You'll hear from Joe Brindle, founder of the Teach the Future campaign, which aims to urgently repurpose the education system around the climate emergency. And you'll hear from Leslie Medema, one of my longtime mentors and the head of curriculum at Green School International, where I went to school in Indonesia. And for one last time, you will be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Ashwarya over at chiku underscore wild to bring you some brilliant content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Deneb Jardin. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional.